This is exactly right. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan, and you're listening to the Parent Footprint Show. Our goal at Parent Footprint and our mission is to create a loving world with more compassionate people, one parent and one child at a time. At Parent Footprint, we strongly believe that the key to raising happy, healthy, engaged, and aware kids is for parents to be happy, healthy, engaged, and aware in their very own lives. We believe that awareness is the foundation to creating a vision of successful parenting. Part of the way we do this is we have this podcast with amazing guests like we have today to talk about timely topics that can be game changers in the way that you parent. Today's show is called Rethinking Discipline with Your Child's Brain in Mind, and I am really fired up to have my colleague, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, join us today to talk about her work. Tina is the best-selling co-author, along with Dr. Dan Siegel, of two New York Times best-selling books, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline. She's also the executive director of the Center for Connection in Pasadena, as well as an amazing pediatric and adolescent psychotherapist. Tina talks all over the world educating parents and teachers and clinicians, and uh, I feel privileged to have you here today. Tina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dan. I'm so excited to get to do this with you because you are such an amazing change maker in the world, and I can't wait to kind of wrestle with these ideas with you. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so there's so much for us to talk about, so I'm just going to pick an area to dive right in. Now, what I want our listeners to know, probably several have read your books, but for those of you who haven't, this brain-based parenting um, aha has really been a paradigm shift uh, in parenting. And when I first discovered it through your books, first, uh, firstly, The Whole Brain Child, I was like, oh my gosh, this is makes so much sense. It's so It's so practical. And how did we not think about our children's brain when we were thinking about how to parent them. So I guess that's a statement and an aha awareness. But my my question for you is how did your work evolve into brain-based focused and particularly brain-based parenting? Well, you know, I, I've got three boys of my own um, who are now 16, 13, and 10. But when I started really studying about the brain, it was around the year 2000. And I had a newborn, and I started learning about the brain. And I was in the, I was working on a PhD at the time in um, social work, and I was studying um, child rearing theory and child development and attachment science and all of this. And then I came across Dan Siegel's work, and I started studying with him. And so what was happening was, over the the years of my children's kind of early years, I was studying with Dan and working on this PhD. And as I was learning about how the brain and the nervous system work and how it explains so much of our behavior and our emotions and how we interact in relationships, I started you know, going to these classes and, and sitting in these study sessions. And I would sit in traffic because we're in LA, right? So I would sit mm-hmm. in traffic and I'd be thinking about all of these things I was learning about, um, about the brain. And I was thinking, okay, when I get home, 
how can I take what I'm learning about this to think about my kids in a different way and parent in a way that holds their brains in mind? Uh, And it was remarkably practical and helpful in me kind of peeling back the layer behind their behavior or what was going on to understand what was happening. And it was so exciting and it really shifted and empowered me and in lots of ways made parenting easier, which, oh my goodness, how how much do we all want Parenting easier, right? Yes. And I, and I started sharing it with other parents and teaching it and people were getting excited about it. And so that's kind of how the Whole Brain Child book was born, was to take this this knowledge that we have of how the brain works and apply it in really practical ways to our child's ongoing development and, and all of our relationships, actually. And then in the next book, No Drama Discipline, to talk about how do we let that information we know about how the brain works inform being effective disciplinarians so that we can really see behavior changing over time. So it's it's been really exciting to apply it in kind of in the trenches myself as a parent and then in a, as a clinician with other um, it, with with clients and and helping other clinicians. And then I also work in a school one day a week. So I've been trying to um, I've been also had had the privilege of, of kind of seeing how it unfolds in the classroom as well. So how would you how would you explain? how this brain-based parenting approach differs from the more traditional parenting models that have been around a long time? Well, I think the biggest thing and the thing that I'm most kind of excited and passionate about, about kind of challenging the current ways of thinking, because Dan, in lots of ways, I think the current trends in parenting, while they somewhat differ in, while they differ in some ways from kind of traditional parenting, they're st- we're still very much stuck in traditional ways mm-hmm. of parenting, especially when it comes to discipline. And I think that um, what's different about this brain-based approach, at least in the way that Dan Siegel and I um, approach it, is that we are not just interested in the behavior we're interested in the mind behind the behavior. And so mm. when I see my kid acting crazy, insane, reactive, tantrum-y, uh, disrespectful, that kind of thing, what I want to know is what is happening in terms of their brain and their ner- whole nervous system. And let me just say really quickly, because this is an important point. When I say brain, um, I mean the, that the brain is embodied. So it's part of the whole nervous system and the whole body. So Um, You know, when my heart is beating quickly and I'm feeling, you know, tense muscles, that is all, that's all part of what I mean when I say brain. I mean, it's embodied Mm -hmm. as part of the whole body. And I also mean that it's relational. So, so that the interactions we have with each other, um, non-verbally and verbally and, and all of these things impact the brain as well. So I think the biggest thing is that when, when we see kids who are having a hard time, traditional ways of parenting would be very much to be like an extinction model, like make that behavior stop or knock it off or don't do that or that kind of thing. Now, that mm-hmm. may be our ultimate goal is that we want a behavior to lessen and go away. But but instead of just stopping the behavior using fear-based approach or using like a power kind of um, approach where we say, I'm going to do something to you that's so unpleasant, you'll never want to do it again. Um, instead, we're thinking, okay, we want to know what's the mind behind this behavior. And let me just give, let me give a little bit more of a, of a specific kind of application of that. And that is, this is broad brush done in kind of a simplistic way. Sure, but sure. the idea is that, you know, the left side of the brain is a problem solving, logical, factual 
um, approach to the world. And the right side of the brain, the way it approaches the world, is much more um, a felt sense of like a gut instinct or, or a bodily sensation and much more in touch with kind of the emotions of, of what's going on and the overall picture and the feel of something. And so we also can think about the left side of the brain as an emotional desert and the right side of the brain as an emotional tsunami. So what happens is, you know, when when a person, whether it's a child or an adult, a parent, is in a good state of mind, they're in a, what we would call in our book, um, when they're in an integrated state of mind. So their brain is balanced. They Even if they're feeling frustrated or angry, they're still able to make good decisions and handle themselves well and be open and receptive to what's happening. Um, when we're in that good integrated state, the left and the right sides of our brain, our logical system and our emotional system can communicate pretty well with each other. We can balance mm-hmm. that out. But if the right, if we get really upset, if we start getting more and more overwhelmed or we get really frustrated or really angry, that emotional tsunami, that right hemisphere becomes much more active. And the left side of the brain that's logical and into problem solving and the right emotional brain stop really talking to each other. They become disintegrated. So what happens is I see my child in the moment who is totally irrational and mm-hmm. saying things like, you, you know, I hate homework and my birthday isn't for nine more months and you never, you know, you never do anything nice to me, you know, or whatever. Right, um, right. I know in that moment that the left side of the brain is not really engaged in the conversation. And so mm-hmm. my and my, you know, traditional ways of approaching parenting would be to logically argue, to say, what are you talking about? You have we do all these nice things for you. You're so ungrateful and we kind of just focus right. on the behavior and Old the school. logic. Right. Old school, mm-hmm. right? And like, you know, you're you're so spoiled, you know, when I grew up, you know, we weren't even allowed to argue with our parents and you know, we do all <laughs> right. of that. Right. Um But from a brain-based perspective, we would go, oh, my kid's having a right hemisphere tsunami right now. And my, even though my gut, my, my instinct in this moment is to argue with my child logically and tell them why they're, the things Mm -hmm. that they're saying make no sense. Mm -hmm. I know that side of their brain's not even involved in the conversation. And so I have to, I can communicate much more effectively with their right side of the brain by using a lot more nonverbal communication, by using a lot more soothing and, and empathy-like, for instance, wow, you're having such a hard time right now. You're feeling really frustrated or you're really Mm -hmm. angry. What's going on? I will listen. And so approaching with sort of more connection first, allowing that right hemisphere to kind of settle down. And when it does, then the logical stuff will work again. So I think when when we understand the mind behind the paper and actually what parts of our kids' brains are working or not working, it allows us to be more effective. For sure. And, you know, I had a, a two, you're making me think of two things. So similar to you, I've got three teenagers at home. So any conversation that is not necessarily uh, prompted by them, where we need to tell them something or weigh in on something that's less desirable, you know, can easily turn into a um, a not wonderful interaction. So one thing in terms of just awareness, I realize because you said people of all ages, like if I don't check my emotion and energy in center or become integrate myself, right. the the 
the probability of having a positive interaction that actually amounts to anything worthwhile is really slim. So, <laughs> right. So there, there, first there's that one. And then what I love about what you said is really taking a sort of a temperature of what part of the brain that they're in. And something else that you guys have written about besides the right and left is the higher and lower brain. Right. Which um, I'm going to ask you in a second just to say a little bit about that, because I think that like that, that rounds everything out. But before I do, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time working with families with anxiety, the aha to me was, okay, we always talk about a person's amygdala, their fight and flight center is activated in a fear center. And so guess what happens when we big adults come in screaming, pointing and threatening of how we're going to take away their most favorite thing or put like that's the part of the brain that's going to turn on. That's exactly right. And Dan, you know, I think Dan and I, are, Dan Siegel and I are working on a, a new book that'll be out September of 2017, um, where we basically talk about how the brain is either in a receptive state or in a reactive state. And we talk about that mm. in No Drama Discipline mm-hmm. as well. And so one of the ways we're kind of talking about that in this new book and something I've been teaching for a few years now is to actually think about, and this is informed by a bunch of different people's work, it's sort of my version of it, but like that, that integrated state I talked about when we can kind of you know, hold ourselves together and handle ourselves well when we're still open and receptive. That's what I call the green zone. Mm-hmm. And when we get into heightened nervous system arousal, we get into like our hearts beating really fast, our muscles are really tense, our eyes get really big, and we start feeling really anxious or panicky or angry, like intensity of emotion. That takes us into higher states of reactivity, and that would be what we call the red zone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the blue zone would be when we're in really turned down, shut down states, right? And that's what kind of basically where we go floppy and... and um, and we, we get shut down. And all of that, you know, if, if you and I geeked out just over, you know, burgers or something, we'd be talking about, you know, nervous system arousal and parasympathetic and all that. But for the purposes of here, the idea is yes. that yeah. when our kids are in the green zone, when we are in the green zone, that's when we can have a productive conversation and, and all of that. And that's when they're open and receptive. But what happens is, and I love that you brought up that anxiety piece, and that's what I, where I wanted to make the connection there. Is that, you know, when I was, um, when I was doing a lot of therapy with kids and adolescents kind of as a brand new clinician, you know, I had all this knowledge about anxiety disorders and all of this stuff. But what would happen was, you know, I was just trying to teach them these tools to manage their anxiety. But what I didn't realize as a young clinician was that a lot of the tools I was teaching them were things that required them to be in a receptive state in the first place. They had to kind of be able to say, oh, now is time for me to use my tool. And that was really difficult for a lot of them. And what I started realizing when I started peeling back the layers of what is anxiety, it really is heightened nervous system arousal. It's where the brain and the body basically hear that amygdala alarm going off saying there's threat in the environment And the brain and the body assumes that the house is on fire instead of saying, hmm, I wonder if the house is on fire or if it's just burned toast. Oh, it's just burned toast. Right. So it's like everything is the house is on fire. And so that's a really interesting thing to think about because then as teachers or parents or grandparents or whoever, as caregivers, if the way we're responding to children when they're in anxious states or angry states is to further intensify um, the emotion, you know, we do things that actually make them have more nervous system arousal. So we send them away from the green zone. We send them further into the red zone by threatening them, by yelling at them, by giving them, you know, unfair consequences. 
And, and that's, that actually is a lose-lose situation every time. For sure. And for all you listeners out there who are starting to feel badly about your parenting, I want you to know <laughs> that I'll speak for myself. Like, this is what Tina's describing as making it worse. This is the natural parenting paradigm, which is why yes. we're going to be talking about rethinking this. Like, we were, most of us, naturally trained with the sort of, you, you're crying now, I'll give you something to yes. cry about, sort of traditional or I'll ground you. So you, we have to really work hard to be, I guess, integrated and mindful and aware so we can use this knowledge that you're talking about here to get a desired outcome. And in my experience, the desired outcome, it might be to help a child regulate, it might yep. be help them to problem solve, or it might just be help them to get through a panic attack, right? That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, Dan, I love that you said that because, you know, lots of times I go and give talks or whatever, and I know, like, I'll often say, like, if a lot of you might be feeling like, gosh, I wish I had known this earlier or feeling really bad about yourself. And actually, if you will take that feeling and say, wow, that feeling's really uncomfortable right now. But what this means is that I'm growing and evolving. I know more. And mm-hmm. that means that that's how we should be feeling. I mean, if you looked back at your like diaries in middle school and you still thought they were awesome, that would say a lot about how <laughs> you really weren't developing much. Like we should look back at things we've done and go, Ooh, I wish I had done that differently because it means we're evolving and, and growing. And the other thing, Dan, I would say is, you know, I do that all the time as a parent. I amplify my children's distress all the time. I don't mean mm-hmm. to or and sometimes it's because I'm in the red zone or they've pushed my buttons or I'm exhausted or, you know, something from my childhood. Like I parent in a way that I was parented that I'm reacting to without being thoughtful about and so we do it all the time. I mean, all, even even the experts, that's often right. how we parent. And that's what's so great about what you're doing here and what this, why this work is so meaningful because without awareness and intention, we don't have choice. We just repeat those patterns, which is, I know, the focus of your whole podcast um, series. And that is yeah. that with mm-hmm. awareness and with intention – um, and with our ongoing development, we know we, you know, we can we can be improving, and that that's impacting the next generation, so that they have less of that kind of reactivity as well. Oh, you just said that beautifully, and and just for you know, when we think of awareness, awareness doesn't mean we always become instantly aware and then do everything right. So just when we become aware that we just carried out something similar that our parent did with us that we always hated and it yeah. didn't work out well and we want to do it different next time, like that is amazing. That's an amazing awareness right huge. there. Huge. That's huge. Yeah. So yeah. as we're talking discipline, you know, we're, we're rethinking discipline, but like, so what would you say? It, it's fascinating what the word discipline has become to mean in our culture, right? So yes. what would you say most people think of discipline as? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that. That's what I love to talk about. Um, okay, so here's what, what I talk about is that, you know, when Dan and I were writing the book, we actually had some colleagues who really made us wonder if we even wanted to use the word discipline in the title of our book even though it was a discipline book. Because Mm -hmm. when I say, and when I say this to audiences, I've never once had a different answer. I ask my audiences, when I say the word discipline, what is the association that comes to mind? And in unison, they always say punishment. (laughs) And so when we say discipline, when when someone says, you need to discipline that kid, or that kid needs Mm -hmm. more discipline, what we typically mean is punishment. And so, you know, this is where the current trends of parenting and the traditional trends of parenting are still the same. It's very much a... 
a punishment consequence based approach. And it's really about making a behavior stop or like you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You need to do it or you're doing something you're not supposed to do. Stop it. That's kind of the typical thinking when it comes to discipline. And Mm -hmm. what Dan and I decided we wanted to do was to change the cultural association and make a huge cultural shift in what we mean when we say discipline. And what we decided to do was take us back to the original meaning of the word, which is teaching. Mm -hmm. Discipline truly means to teach and to build skills. So when I say I want to be a really effective disciplinarian, People typically Mm -hmm. think I mean I want to be a strict, punitive parent. Right. What I mean is I want to be a really effective teacher and skill builder so that my children become self-disciplined and that when they face circumstances or they even make poor decisions, that they have the skills to turn it around and to do better the next time. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, and and that's what I tell parents all the time too, is if you want to be an effective disciplinarian, and by that, of course, I mean teacher and skill builder, Mm -hmm. then you should be seeing yourself disciplining less over time because you're building skills in your child and you're teaching them ways to more effectively handle themselves to be able to self-regulate and make better decisions over time. So that's the huge cultural shift that I'm talking about. And, you know, most of what we do in the name of discipline, Dan, is actually not at all, not at all, something that leads to a lot of teaching and skill building. It's really focused on just the behavior in that moment. And so this is where, again, you know, if you were to ask me, like, what is the elevator speech or what is the main approach for this brain-based no-drama discipline? And it's, it's basically this, that the brain is either in a receptive state or a reactive state, as I mentioned, and we can only learn if we're in a receptive state. And so in the name of discipline, teaching and skill building, then my child has to be in a receptive state of mind in order to learn, right? That's that green zone stuff, right? Right. So the problem with most of what we do in the name of discipline is we, we respond to our children's behavior and emotions in ways that moves them toward more reactivity. So typically the first thing it comes to when the first thing I think of when it comes to a discipline moment is to ask this, is my child ready in this moment to learn? And am I ready to teach? Right. We both have to be in the green zone. For oh, it wait, to work. Though, say those two things again. I mean, those are, those are two very key phrases. It's huge. Is my child ready to learn? And am I ready to teach? Right. So yep. we both mm-hmm. have to be in the green zone. And unfortunately, most of us were raised and most of us have been taught that if you don't respond to the misbehavior right there in the moment, then they won't really learn. And that is not true. That's based on research that was done primarily on animals in the 50s. <laughs> I was going to say dogs, right? <laughs> yeah, even a two-year-old, you know, a two-year-old gets dysregulated, you know, she throws her shoe at your face, you know, okay, she is not in a, in a, in a teachable moment right now. She's not ready to learn. If I go and say, when you're mad, use your words. Like, she can't hear that right now. She is throwing stuff. You'll so get another number, shoe. 
Exactly. So, so, you know, I get her a snack, I calm her down, come and sit with mom, let's read a book, you know, we, we kind of like calm down. Once she's back in this green zone where she is open and receptive and not reactive anymore, then I can say that's the teachable time, right? And I can say, remember what happened earlier when you're through your shoe at mommy's face? Let's tell that story. And we can go back to that. I mean, even a two-year-old. So for mm-hmm. sure, as our kids get older. So we, we've been taught that we have to respond to it right in that moment. But if your kid's in the reactive red zone, or you are, that's usually the worst time to discipline. So sometimes the very first step in this brain-based discipline approach is to say, okay, my goal is to teach. Right. And I, in order to do that effectively, I need my child to be in a receptive state. And then I have to ask the question, okay, how do I get my child back into the receptive state? They're still a volcano right now. They're red zone spewing lava, cra- you know, really, really angry or totally shut down and disengaged. How do I get them back into this receptive, teachable state? And the answer to that is also based on what we know about the brain and the nervous system. And that is that typically understanding and giving validation and empathy mm-hmm. is what rounds our right. curves, our at heart edges. It kind of moves us back into this receptive state. So just a quick example of something every parent deals with. So let's say your kid says something really rude and disrespectful to you. Like, I hate you. You're so stupid. I wish you weren't even my mom. Now, right. tip, the typical traditional parenting response would be to say, you can't talk to me like that. Now, mm-hmm. notice... I, if I use an angry, reactive tone of voice, that's actually am- like telling my child threat, 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 nonverbal threatening cues, which amplify right. them into more distress and let more reactivity. But it's also a really dumb thing to say because they can, uh, like we say, you can't talk to me that way. They can't. Right. They did. They <laughs> like, just already yeah, did. Yes, I can. And I'm going to do it again. Did. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And so instead, I might say to my child, oh, man, you're so mad at me right now. You're so angry. What's going on? Come here. And I would offer empathy and connection, and I would respond to them as if they were physically hurt. And I think that's really helpful to think about. If your kid came around the corner Mm -hmm. crying with a scraped up knee, you'd say, oh, what happened? Come here. And we would comfort them. So if they're in emotional distress and emotional reactivity, which often looks like really crappy, bad behavior. Right. So I say, oh, come here. What's going on? You're so angry. And I provide that empathy. And then my child tells me what's going on. I'm really frustrated, whatever. Or they might slam their door and say, I don't want to talk to you. I give it maybe a few minutes. I then go say, I'm just coming to see if you need help calming down or if you want, if you're ready, if you want me to listen or something like that. I'm offering comfort. Then once that has happened, they're back in the green zone, they're comforted with, through connection, then I can say, let's talk about the way you talked to me earlier. And then in that moment, if I help them reflect on what was going on for them, like I, this is a phrase I use all the time, Dan, with my own kids. I'll say, I know you know it's not really kind or respectful. It's not really the way we like to communicate, to talk like that. So like, or I know you know that's not okay to hit your brother. So what was going on for you? And I asked them to have some reflection, some insight. And then I might say, mm-hmm. okay, what could you do differently next time? And how can you make things right? So I'm, I'm really focused on empathy, some insight, some empathy, and some repair. Those are the three things I'm often most focused on in that reflective dialogue. And then at the end right. of that, I go, okay, did I teach my child and did I build skills? Yes and yes. I'm done. The discipline moment is over. 
No need to punish, exactly. right? Like the, the the teaching has been done. Exactly. So I want to I want to re- reiterate just a couple things that I'm hearing, um, which are wonderful. So first is the whole idea that we have to be integrated ourselves with our left and our right brain. That we should be thinking about our kids' left and right brains, emotional slash intellectual problem solving. And most of the time that they are upset, whether at themselves or other people um, or us. They're in their emotional tsunami brain. And if they're in their emotional tsunami brain, they're not in a receptive learning mode. They're more in a reactive one. And then our job is to kind of center ourselves, check ourselves, so we can ask the question, am I ready to teach them, and are they ready to learn? And then we have to find a way to validate, to empathize, to understand to soothe them so they can be they can be in a learning moment and we don't have to do it right then when the crime is committed. Cool. So this is a lot of stuff (laughs) and the listeners are like, okay, that sounds really great. So what I want to do is break this down and is I guess ask this one this one thing. So what is one thing that you suggest parents do or think about when they're starting off in this new paradigm? One thing. The one thing I would say is to comfort, comfort, comfort when your child is in distress. So if that behavior, you know, regardless of what the behavior looks like, that when your child acts in ways they typically don't, they are in a state of distress, and that is when they need us most. So start with comfort and empathy and address mm-hmm. the behavior after when the child is back in a, in a sane state of mind. That's the one thing. But of course, Dan, I have to have a second thing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which is you can th- have a second which thing. Which is that we have to be calm ourselves in order to do that, right? I mean, this requires totally. that we self-regulate. And so sometimes... Our own awareness exactly, of ourselves. And sometimes, you know, if we have a trauma history, if we have parents who were really harsh and critical and we felt afraid a lot and we have a lot of sort of reactivity in our background, it might be the mo- one of some of the times the most important thing is that we go get our own professional help to sort through that that backstory because if it continues to kind of bleed into um, our, our daily interactions with our kids, you know, one of the best things we can do for our kids is for us to go and make sense of our own story. But other times it's something more simple like making sure we're getting enough sleep or that we have fun time with friends away from our kids or that we that basically we keep our tanks full so that we have the capacity to do this kind of, of comfort. For sure. And what you said is completely in line with the parent footprint values, which is the best way to raise healthy kids is for us to focus on being healthy ourselves. And that can take the form of sleep exercise, but also going back and being aware of some of our past experiences that might be eking out or just viscerally coming out just because of our past experiences. That's right. So this leads us up to, to the question to the question, the parent footprint moment. So this is the question where you get to tell us when was a time when you became aware of something about yourself as an individual and or as a parent, and that awareness had a positive impact on your kids? It's all very much tied in with all of this that we've been talking about. I, by nature, um, tend to be very much a problem solver. And very logical. I'm very in my he- in my head all the time. And so, what I was finding with my kids is that when they were when they were 
you know, reactive or they were having meltdowns, I was trying to solve it and fix it. And Mm -hmm. I realized that what they needed most from me was this, all this that we've been talking about. And I, as I was studying and learning about the brain and and the impact of how that brain gets built in, in the most integrated way possible, when we provide what's called secure attachment, that, mm-hmm. that that is the number one predictor of the best outcomes for kids is that they've had secure attachment with at least one parent. And what that means is that in the everyday moments, it doesn't matter so much what we do, like in that discipline moment, what I say, what I do, what matters most is that my child has not perfect, but predictable moments and consistent over mm-hmm. time of feeling safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Those are the four S's of, of secure attachment, safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And so what I started realizing in the moment about myself and about the way I was raised was that I immediately wanted to solve and fix. And that, my, that when I started seeing that what my children needed more from me than to solve or to fix which is very much, I think, current parent trending is to make sure our children don't feel any negative emotions and to bubble wrap and to fix and solve everything so they never have to face adversity, that that is not my job. My job is to walk with them through it. And what my kids needed most from me and what I think has had the most important influence on who they are becoming and how their brains are getting integrated is that I let go of my need to fix and solve. I let go of my Mm -hmm. fear of if I just comfort them and bring them empathy, won't that just make them spoiled and feel like the whole world? Because that's a whole other podcast talk, but that the research clearly shows that when we show up for kids and we provide them with comfort and empathy, it actually builds their frontal lobe, that upstairs brain that you referenced earlier, in a way that allows them to not be spoiled, to not be indulged, to actually be thoughtful of other people and to make sound decisions and to discipline themselves and, and all of those things. And so if I can let go of my need to fix, and I, and, and I also realized my fear in not just addressing the behavior in kind of a punitive way, I was afraid that if I did that, my kids would turn out spoiled, that when I realized that I could let go of both of those things and that the research supported that if I show up for them, by helping them feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And I could just be present with them and soothe and comfort them when they were in states of distress, that that was going to be what was going to be best for their ongoing brain development and best for our relationship. So um, I, I remember a very, very specific moment where my son had marched down the staircase. He was about eight with his arms folded with an angry tone of voice and um, and said, what I referenced earlier um, in the conversation, he said, you never leave me a note in the middle of the night and I hate homework and my birthday isn't for nine more months. And I started to argue with him and give him the logical explanation for why he shouldn't feel that way. And I went, ah, this is it. This is, this is where I go right brain. This is where I go connection. And, um, and it, but it's a discipline, Dan. It's something I have to constantly work on. So, Tina, that is a beautiful parent footprint moment because you had this awareness that your job as parent is not to solve your kids' problems. It's not to keep them from experiencing pain. You have to walk with them through life, help teach them, you know, back to this discipline, teach them and, um, and help them grow. Yeah. And the other thing, which is really key, is that 
this is a process and listeners this is a process uh, like even when you do this for a living you are still always practicing it you're going to make mistakes and it's just about having that awareness so you can just keep parenting with intention and purpose so you can create that footprint that you want to leave for your own kids that's right tina this was everything and more that I hoped it would be. And um, thank you for spending this time. Um, I know you're traveling all over the place. You're working on your books. You're consulting. And so um, this time is invaluable uh, to me and to us at Parent Footprint. So thank you so, so uh, much. Thank you for asking me. I'm honored. So tell everyone where they can learn more about your talks, your books, your center, where they can find you. Easy. It's tinabryson.com and that's b-r-y-s-o-n and uh, they can find links to my center for connection uh, which is an interdisciplinary um, team that uses this approach in helping um, families and kids and um, i've also got links on that page to my facebook and twitter where i'm always posting all kinds of fun articles and things not even stuff necessarily that i write but cool stuff like that you write dan well and (laughs) and you blog too and you blog too about all this stuff awesome Okay, everyone, thank you for attending, listening to our show today. If you want to contact us about the podcast, please email podcasts at parentfootprint.com. Of course, visit us at our website, www.parentfootprint.com. And I ask you the question I always ask, what footprint do you want to leave?